Unless you swam to China and sell you South Carolina, then you know you're talking to that repo man. Have you ever met a funny repo man? Have you ever met a funny repo man? Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and also pick us up through iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play and by keeping your ear to the streets but your eyes on the prize. Yeah. And, and you said you've noticed that we're on Player FM too? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Player it's, FM, I don't know if that's a thing. It's, but uh, It's nothing we did, so... Because <laughs> I noticed we had some traffic coming from there. If you, if you use that, then apparently we're there too, so uh, good. Welcome to it. Good on you, please. Wherever you can find us, please <laughs> find us and listen to us and uh, subscribe and do, do all those f- great things that make podcasters happy. Indeed. Uh, this week we have a book I think Chris has wanted to do for quite a while, and I've wanted to definitely get my eyeballs on it. Uh, and it is uh, the Keebler Company presents DC Comics the New Teen Titans anti drug PSA comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually one of three, as we'll find out. And it, they all came out in 1983. This one was written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inked by Dick Giordano, colored by Adrian Roy, and lettered by Ben Oda. Cover price was a dollar in the US, dollar thirty five Canada. But I want to point out. All proceeds from this issue will be donated to fight drug abuse. It will. So, and, what, what, and the the price of a comic was seventy five cents at this time, wasn't it? It was uh, sixty cents. Sixty cents. So this is yeah. like even you know th- this is this is a uh, hike, you know. Yeah, because this is a there's a variant. <laughs> there's a variant. Uh, <laughs> the, the, there's the newsstand one that does go for a dollar, and then there's also the free one that they were giving out in schools. Mm. I see. So yeah, if you if you if you didn't get the free one, you know, if the, too many kids took them and turned them into paper airplanes, you had to go down to the uh, market. I'll roll them at the joints. I, I heard. The, I, yeah, I heard the variant had uh, the Keebler Elf giving you the finger too. On was that it, did. Yeah, anyway. my patch also. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you know, before we jump into all that anti-drug goodness, as we always do, we want to give you some creator bios. Indeed. We'll start with Marv Wolfman. Uh, Marv and Arthur Wolfman, born May 13th, 1946 in Brooklyn, New York. I think we've, we've talked about him a time or two before, yeah. so th- some of this might sound familiar. Yeah. Uh, he's the son of police officer Abe and housewife Faye. Uh, he's got a sister named Harriet, who is 12 years older than him. Uh, the, <laughs> I love this. The Wolfmans. <laughs> that was correct, though, right? They're <laughs> not is, the Wolfmen. It is correct. They're not the Wolfmen. Uh, the Wolfmans moved to Flushing, Queens when he was 13 where he attended a a public junior high school. Uh, He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, and that's where he met Len Wein and some other uh, comic aficionados. Uh, While in high school, he produced a horror horror fanzine called Stories of Suspense. Um, Issue 2 in 1965 was some of Stephen King's first published work, which is very interesting. Um, A revised version of King's first published story, I Was a Teenage Grave Robber, that appeared serially and unfinished in three issues of another fanzine, which was called Comics Review, that same year. Uh, DC, yeah, DC Comics used to give office tours every week, and in the late 60s, uh, Len and Marv would show up 
every week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that I don't. I didn't live around that time because oh. I, I'd be another one of these guys. I have a feeling Len and Marv might be part of the reason they stopped giving those tours every week. Quite frankly, <laughs> lock the doors. Yeah, okay. uh, eventually, they ingratiated themselves enough for just. To, Showed up enough exactly to where they to where they were given some work. That's kind of like when I was in high school. I used to I used to cut out of some classes into other classes, and they thought that I was a student, and that was the same same kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. you, you hang out long enough, you end up an employee at DC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, Wolfman's first published work for DC Comics appeared in Blackhawk number two forty two. That was covered eight August September nineteen sixty eight, titled "My Brother, My Enemy." But he actually shares a co writing credit with Bob Haney. <laughs> Who probably firmed up his script or did like a little bit of a notation work on it, or he messed with the continuity. Possibly, you know, he, he might he might have thrown a uh, member <laughs> of the Wildcat Inferior in Five in yeah. there. Why not? Uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein would create the suave spy character Johnny Double for Showcase Number Seventy Eight, November nineteen sixty eight. Though he shares co-writing credit there with Joe Gill. And by the way, yes. That is the Charlton Comics writing powerhouse, Joe Gill, who wrote like mm, hundreds everything. of stories. Yeah. Uh, Marvin Len co wrote Eye of the Beholder and Teed Titans number 18. That was covered dated December 1968, which would be Ween's first professional comic credit of his own. Neil Adams was called upon to rewrite and redraw a Teen Titans story titled Titans Fit the Battle of Jericho, which had been written by Ween and Wolfman. Now, this is, becomes a longer story, so. The story was okayed by editor Dick Giordano and then publisher of DC Comics, Erwin Dunnenfeld, but incoming publisher Carmine Infantino killed it after it had been penciled, inked, and lettered. Yeah, when uh, when talking about it, Marv recalls, uh, he says, Len and I, being young liberals, didn't understand why there were no black superheroes. Though neither of us were black, but we lived in the real world where there were certainly blacks all around New York. Uh, so we proposed a story featuring a black superhero. Dick Giordano, the editor, loved it. At that time, the company was still being run by the original owners, and Dick gave the story to Erwin Donenfeld, vice president of the company, who also loved it. Though Donenfeld has no memory of this one asked. Uh, (laughs) Marv gives the details of the original story. He says that the story was about the mob taking advantage of black anger by using and manipulating a teenage gang. Uh, Somebody goes against the gang and tries to stop them. He preaches the Martin Luther King line that people can't resort to guns and violence. At the end, it turned out that the masked superhero is the brother of one of the gang's kids. Hmm. Or the gang kids. And, you know, this is something we see a lot in the late 60s of, uh, you know, Marvel did eventually have Black Panther, but all these starts and stops trying to launch black characters. Mm -hmm. You know, this this was a hot button issue, you know, 68, that's the year Martin Luther King was assassinated. Assassinated, yeah. Uh, Malcolm X had been killed earlier that year, I think that was maybe 67. It it, it was a big issue, and, you know, you have to, uh, I don't want to get too deep into it, but, you know, nowadays there's there's a lot of push for diversity in comics, but you understand that back then there was no diversity. You know, there was only white faces primarily, you know what I mean? Very rare to see a a black character, so... Uh, this was, you know, there was a push. There was a reason behind the push, is what I'm getting at. It would have, it would have been a sales risk, much, much like it is still today. Still, but in a different way. You know what I mean? Yep. The sales Absolutely. risk was, can we sell it? And we'll, we'll talk about that here. Uh, Neil Adams, though himself, remembered it differently. He said it was this script was full of racist remarks, reverse racism, with a tremendous amount of lashing out by young white liberals. I'll fix those hundred years of racism, you white honkies type stuff. It was simply too much. 
and about 40 years too early. Mm -hmm. um, Wolfman admits that it wasn't perfect. He says, at the time, it was a very controversial story. Though when I read it now, I can only think, gee, our writing wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> According to Mauve, Donenfeld liked the story so much that he had asked them to extend it to a two-parter and gave other notes in, 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 in also. Yeah, and then Donenfeld retired, and Carbine Infantino was promoted to publisher. Infantino loved the art, which was by Nick Cardi, some of the best he'd ever done, uh, but he hated the story. Infantino said, I remember looking at it and I rejected it totally. Giordano had okayed the job, I believe, but after it was done, I thought it was so terrible that I wouldn't print it. It was simple as that. I don't remember any specifics about it now, but I know I, I just didn't like it, so I had to use my best judgment. Len Wein remembers it. He says, uh, at the last minute, Carmine got gun-shy and was afraid that we wouldn't be able to sell the book in the South and that all these terrible things would happen. So he just pulled the issue and said, nope, we're not going to do it. This was less than a week before the book was supposed to ship to the printer. The cover was already done and printed, so it had to have Jericho in the title and something to do with the action on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Neil came to the rescue, says Giordano. Uh, he says, Neil, across the hall, here's all of this and comes in. We both had this wonderful relationship at DC and being able to communicate without talking. Sometimes you just had to do that. So after Carmine had thrown the art back in my lap, Neil came in and looked at them. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm going home and I'm going to think about it. Tomorrow I'll decide. I came in the next morning and there were seven pages. He'd stayed up all night penciling them. Wow, that is seven pages overnight lot. with Neil Adams yeah. on. <laughs> we haven't looked. At, we haven't looked at this particular issue, but I have a feeling that if we if it looks a little loose, we know why. You know what I mean? It kind of yeah, understandably so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, still, Adams' rewrite was rejected by editorial, proving to Marv that the problem was the content of the story, not the quality of the writing. Uh, Adams and Giordano were able to salvage the story somehow using a pastiche of Neil Adams and Nick Cardi's work and some clever coloring on the cover where they recolored the black guy to look to be white, but he clearly looks black. Uh, yes. And then the cover I did take a look at when I was doing this. The revised story appeared in Teen Titans number 20, March, April 1969. Neil Adams gets writing and art credit totally. Turns out uh, the racist mob figures are being controlled by beings from Dimension X in the revamped version. Which is good enough, I guess. Uh, you know. Why not? They, so, they are known for their racism in Dimension X. <laughs> they, they really, they definitely, <laughs> they definitely are very racist. Uh, Marvin and Lennon were pretty unpopular at DC for a few years after that, as you might imagine. Although Dick Giordano allowed Marv to sneak in an origin story for Wonder Girl in Teen Titans number 22, cover date August 1969, and penciled by Gil Kane. Uh, and then we turn into the 70s, where the Comics Code Authority was tested by Marv Wolfman's name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> House of Secrets, number 83, uh, cover dated January 1970. The intro page, which was written by Jerry Conway, makes reference to this being a story told to me by a wandering Wolfman. And the following story was... The Stuff That Dreams Are Made Of by Marv Wolfman and art by Alex Toth. Uh, this uh, eventually would lead to writers being credited in the uh, mystery and horror mags, which yeah. is a good thing. It's, it's, it's really one of our favorite comics code stories. It because, is. Yeah, the, the comic, you couldn't have the word Wolfman in mm -hmm. comics, but then they were able to say this is a person's name and this... And they, I think it was 71 was the official relaxing. 71 was the, the change, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we, this, this is one of our favorites. But, yeah, it led to writer and, and artist credits, so it all worked out lovely in the end. 
It did. It did. Uh, Marv co-created Destiny of the Endless, along with Bernie Wrightson in Weird Mystery Tales Number 1, uh, cover date August 1972. Uh, Destiny would host the series, because a lot of these horror books were mm. like anthologies that were hosted by, you know, you had like the Crypt Keeper right. in Tales of the Crypt, and uh, Destiny would serve as host for uh, 14 issues. And then moved on to another horror anthology called Secrets of the Haunted House. Um, in 1972, uh, Marv crossed the street. <laughs> Roy <laughs> Thomas brought Marv and Len over to Marvel. Almost immediately, Roy stepped down as Marvel's editor-in-chief uh, so he can concentrate on his writing. Uh, Marv and Len were promoted to EIC. Len of the Color Magazines, Marv for the Black and White Line. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, literally, like, it's amazing, right? I think I think they had worked for a year before they were promoted. It's like, what? What, what happened? All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after a year, Len was booted from his EIC position, and Marv would take over the entire Marvel line. Mm-hmm. And he lasted about a year, and then he quit. Seems like he was encouraged to do so, and uh, <laughs> replaced by Jerry Conway. One innovation Marv did bring to Marvel, I thought this was very strange to the point where I almost can't believe it, but this is what I what I read was the warehouse story, or what, we, what I know as an inventory story. These yes. are stories done ahead of time that could be inserted in place of ones that missed deadlines. That I know for a fact this was a common practice at DC. Uh, mm-hmm. Weisinger used to boast of having, you know, inventory stories to last drawers full. years, yep. you know what I mean? So, But apparently Marvel wasn't doing this, or maybe... They hadn't built up for certain lines. You know, a lot of their lines were, they were constantly coming up with the new comics at this time. This is when they broke out of their eight per month, you know, restriction. Yeah, so mandate. Maybe yeah. that's, you know, they didn't have the inventory for stuff like, you know, Iron Fist or, you know, Master of Kung Fu, what have you. Anyway, that's what he instituted. So that was um, a good lasting effect. And now during his time in Marvel, Wolfman would wrote lengthy runs of Amazing Spider-Man, where he co-created the Black Cat with Keith Pollard, Fantastic Four, and Doctor Strange. Wolfman co-created Bullseye and Daredevil number 131, March 1976 cover day with Bob Brown, and co-created Nova for Nova number one. This is the Richard Ryder one, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. September 1976 with John Buscema. Now, when I think of uh, Wolfman in the 70s, I usually think of Tomb of Dracula, which uh, is probably his best known for this period, uh, with art by Gene Colan. It ran for uh, 70 issues from April of 72 to August of 79. Uh, Marv did not come in on the ground floor. He didn't start scripting until 7. Um, during this run, they co-created uh, the vampire hunter Blade, who has starred in several movies uh, uh, around the turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Trinity was the last one. Um, now, when uh, cancellation of Tomb of Dracula was imminent, Marv intended to wrap up the series on a three-part story, which would end in issue number 72. By then, uh, the editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter, and he cut two issues after they'd been penciled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marv recalls as saying, uh, he says, uh, I think I realized we were doing a finite story, and to continue that storyline would have pushed it into repetition. I wrote the final three issues, and they were drawn. Jim was someone that, when he liked you, there was nothing he wouldn't do for you. And when he didn't, there was nothing he would do. He and I had butted heads often since I had been editor-in-chief before him, and I was the editor of Tomb of Dracula, which rankled him as I didn't have to listen to his ideas. Anyways, I said the stories were done and I needed the room. He gave me a double-sized last issue, and I really needed a triple-sized book. I was stuck and had to find a way to cut 14 pages from the printed book. Thank God I hadn't dialogued them all yet, so I cut up pages, rearranged stuff, and dialogued it so it read smoothly. And I guess it all worked out in the end. Uh, I have no idea. 
Never read, I don't know. Never read the end of. I read some Tomb of Dracula, but never can't claim to have read the whole run by any. I'm stretch. in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that he was not without work though. In general, he was. Uh, he wrote 14 issues of Marvel two and one, starting with issue number 25 in March 77. Spider Woman was launched in April 1978 by Wolfman and artist Carmine Infantino back in the, the old duo back again. Uh, Marv had retooled the character, gave her the alter ego of Jessica Drew, which I don't think holds anymore. I really don't know. I think she's still her, yeah. Still her, maybe back to being her. I don't know what's, what's happening. Maybe. Spider Woman. There's years. been three or four. There's yeah. been a few, yeah. Uh, Marv succeeded Len Wein in Amazing Spider-Man, and in his first issue, number 182, July 78, he and Peter Parker proposed marriage to Mary Jane Watson. She refused in the following issue, which is fun. <laughs> yes. in, in 1978, Wolfman and artist Alan Kupperberg took over for Howard the Howard the Duck syndicated newspaper comic strip, which I have never seen and I would be really interested in. Certainly. Uh, a Godzilla story by Wolfman and Steve Ditko was changed to a Dragon Lord story published in Marvel Spotlight Volume 2, number 5. Uh, March 1980. Dragon Lord's antagonist was intended to be Godzilla, but Marvel's rights to the character had lapsed the previous year. This is kind of like what happened to Logan's Run, right? They, 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 yeah. They keep not knowing what their rights are to these uh, properties. Yeah, so, the ROM space night and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and Logan's Run did the same thing. Yeah, the uh, mm -hmm. the creature was modified to a dragon called the Wani. Sounds good. Sure. Uh, <laughs> In 1980, Wolfman would return to DC after a dispute with the editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter, who offered to renew Wolfman's contract as a writer, but not as an editor. And uh, it's tough to find many details about this split, but in the old, early 2000s, Marv made the following observation. Like Stan, we always signed our first names to the bullpen page. It was Stan the Man, Rascally Roy, Lively Len, Marvelous Marv, Affable Archie, and so on. Not only is the way is that the way we all preferred being addressed, Mr. Wolfman was my father, I'm Marv, but using first names is always friendlier. But things changed when one of fandom's favorite whipping boys, Jim Shooter, took control of Marvel. I'm not here to discuss whether he was right, right or wrong in what he did. I had quit Marvel and went to DC very early on in his reign. But Jim was the first person to sign the bullpen pages with only his last name, Shooter. Not Shining Shooter, not Six Gun Shooter, just Shooter. First names bring you in as a friend, last names distance you. Okay, so I don't know about a that. Little really projection, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that really says about his <laughs> editorship, but you know, that was that was Marv's commentary about Jim Shooter. Sure. So take that take that for what it is. It's kind of what happens when you bring someone in who wants to run a business like a business. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. Uh, with penciler George Perez, Marv would relaunch DC's Teen Titans in a special preview in DC Comics Presents number 26, October 1980. And I think they had to fight for this one, too, because uh, Titans had been canceled twice already at this point. That's true, yeah. Uh, and now, uh, this would, uh, you know, it, it, Wolfman and Perez, they would co-create characters Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven and introduce them. Uh, added them to the existing crew of Robin, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, and Beast Boy, who is now known by cha as Change. Uh, sometimes uh, Speedy Roy Harper would hang out too. Uh, they had their formal debut with uh, New Teen Titans number one, uh, covered eight November 1980. It was edited by his old friend Len Wein. Hey, the two of these guys, you can't separate them. You know, you no matter. You, you can't put a piece of cheese between that bread. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, New Teen Titans is an immediate smash hit. It outsold everything else at DC, and finally brought them into range of Marvel's uh, dominant market share. Uh, Book was so popular, it uh, even got some anti-drug PSAs. How yeah, about that? look at that. You know, <laughs> it, it totally came into the culture. Yeah, uh, just just a little bit. I, I did see a little bit about how 
uh, Marvin, actually it was Marvin first got the Teen Titans assignment, was Jeanette Khan asked him what he wanted to do. Yeah. And he pointed at that, and, you know, this was after the DC implosion, but I think Jeanette Khan was still looking to throw things at the wall and see what... Trying to stick. broaden the... Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's funny, you know, at, at one company you have a new editor-in-chief that's making everybody, you know, toe the line, and you got at the other company that kind of... It's, it, it never seems like DC and Marvel can operate the same. You know, they're always like the they're mirror image of each other at, yeah. at every turn. You know what I mean? It's they're like, never on the same page. They can, they can never be, you know, champions of the market at the same time. They, it's very strange. But uh, anyway, we'll talk a little bit now about George Perez. He was born June, 9, 19, June 9th, 1954 in the South Bronx, New York City. He was to parents Jorge Guzman Perez and Luis, Luz Maria Izquierdo. They were both from Caguas, Puerto Rico, but they met around 1949 in New Jersey. Jorge worked in the meatpacking industry while Luz was a homemaker. George's younger brother, David, was born May 28, 1955, and both brothers aspired to be artists. George picked up the habit at age five. I'm not sure if David ever kept going with it. Don't know. In 1973, George broke into the industry as an assistant to Rich Buckler, who was drawing Fantastic Four at the time. George Perez's first credit was in Marvel's Astonishing Tales, number 25, August 1974, as a penciler of an untitled two-page satire of Buckler's character, Deathlock. Uh, Perez penciled a run on Son of the Ti- Sons, of- Sons of the Tiger. This was a serialized action-adventure strip published in Marvel's long-running Deadly Hands of Kung Fu magazine and written by Bill Mantlo. George and Mantlo co-created the White Tiger, comics' first Puerto Rican superhero. He first appeared in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number 19, December 1975, and he would find his way into Spider-Man and Defenders titles throughout the decade. In fact, quite a few issues of Spider-Man, I, I came to find out. He was a usual, a regular featured hmm. fella in that comic. It's funny, I sat in on a lecture not too long ago um, where the White Tiger character in the strip was... Uh, was propped up as how bad white comic creators treated uh, tried to, treated minority yeah. uh, characters, and here we have a, a Puerto Rican creator working on a Puerto Rican character. That's right. Yeah, I don't know what to tell hmm. you, folks. Say, uh, <laughs> yeah, the you know, whole thing I, was that I, 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 was won't, a, I won't say that the character isn't reductive, but it's not a white created character. <laughs> no, the the uh, the PhDs I was listening to had. Uh, had a problem with a velvet painting of Jesus being in the background of a uh, of a panel oh. as as reductivist as 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 cliche. Uh, having half of my family being Latin, I can tell you that that's a that, you see that a lot. Precisely, but, yeah, it's actually <laughs> precisely true. Yeah. Yes, uh, anyhow. <laughs> George would begin a long and celebrated run on the Avengers with issue uh, 141. This is November 1975. It would go all the way through to issue number 200, December 1980. Wow. It was a book scripted by Jim Shooter. Uh, go figure. Wow. Um, that a lot of people hate. <laughs> it really? I've always heard it was In, great. I, I've... Issue 200? Oh, I don't know, but I thought you yeah. meant the whole run. Yeah, no, no, the I whole run was great, it, yeah. but issue 200 was, uh, I think that featured Ms. Marvel giving birth, and it was a... Uh, oh, yes, yeah, I've heard. Dig that one. Uh, <laughs> I've heard of this comic, yeah. 
Now, uh, Perez would illustrate several other Marvel titles, including Creatures on the Loose, which featured the Man-Wolf. He also did the Inhumans and the Fantastic Four. Uh, he would uh, actually pair with Marv for the first time on Fantastic Four Annual Number 13, which was December 1979. Uh, in 1980, while still doing the Avengers for Marvel, Perez began working for their rival, DC. Um, he began drawing the new Teen Titans with their first appearance in DC Comics Presents number 26. Uh, he actually took the job drawing new Teen Titans because the promise to draw Justice League of America, which he felt was a natural progression from writing The Avengers, which he did, beginning with issue number 184, this uh, November 1980. Yeah, because he, right? yeah, he also did the, uh, the prelims for the, uh, the first... The, the the one that didn't happen, the Avengers JLA crossover. Yep. The, yeah. With uh, was that that was Jerry Conway wrote that. They were he plotted it, I suppose, and they like, were there are pages. Yeah. Supposed to be like eighty one, eighty two, or something like that, right? Yeah. But uh, he eventually we'll get to that later. But he actually did, was able to make that good on that. Promise. Does happen? Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's for later on. Now uh, this comic is brought to us by the Keebler Company. That is the the fellas with the elves, you know, that live in the. Uh, a hollow tree. In the hollow tree. They make E.L. Fudge. Though we talk a little bit about that company. This was uh, sort of I need of to my... bring Magic Middles back. <laughs> Those <laughs> were good. Well, maybe you could, you know, <laughs> if you could find out who, who owns them nowadays. That's, that was part of, part of my, right. my struggle. But uh, uh, Godfrey Keebler, he was a German immigrant. He opened a bakery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1853. Uh, he sold hardtack to Union soldiers during the Civil War. And hardtack, if people don't know, is a nearly inedible and nearly destructible type of bread or cracker. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, whenever you read about the Civil War, hardtack was keeping a lot of these guys alive uh, in the trenches. In 1890, Keeb Keebler partnered, partnered up with baker Augustus Whale, or probably Vell, forming mm -hmm. the Keeber Vale Bakery. And boxes and tins from this period with the Keebler veil on them are covered by collectors. I looked at them. If you can get some of those late 19th century ones, you might be sitting on a few grand, pals. I'll tell sure. you. I don't know what you got in your uh, attic. But uh, Keebler veil became the first commercial and official baker of Girl Scout cookies in 1936. Uh, then Keebler bought out Vail in 1965, and it went back to just plain old Keebler cookies or Keebler bakery. Uh, then Keebler was bought by National Biscuit Nabisco in 1974. Uh, it's changed hands a few times over the years, uh, I, in uh, especially in the '80s. So, uh, it, this is where it got weird. There was almost it was like hot a hot potato. Yeah, it really was like a shell game going on. I, I have a feeling it it was passed between a small number of people that kept changing their names. You know what I'm saying? It ha <laughs> it was happening so often. I was like, this doesn't look like normal. The normal course of business, especially since I probably kept them in business eating those uh, fudge stripes as a kid. So. <laughs> I don't think they had a, a cash flow problem. But anyway, uh, whatever the case, uh, they're currently owned, I think, by Kellogg Stereal, and they're headquartered in Battle Creek, Michigan. Yeah, all I could find was that they're in Battle Creek, so I figured it, was, it had to be uh, yeah. Kellogg's. Now, on to the, the issue in question here. The Keebler Company presents DC Comics The New Teen Titans. The title is Plague. Now, the issue is framed by sort of like confessional scenes, like uh, like from a sort of, you know, like a contemporary reality show where yeah. something happens and then you have like that one-on-one -on -one scene. Uh, the, this is where we meet some of our cast uh, here one-on-one. -on -one. Not the Titans, though. These are the, uh, the stone-cold early teenage junkies. Uh, we start with the lead singer of Blondie. Or, <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I mean Debbie uh, O'Hara. Yeah, close she's, 
close enough. She kind of resembles her a bit. Uh, she's 13, and her use in her use history includes alcohol, pot, pot, pot. Oh, I mean. Uh, <laughs> Hash, hash oil, PCP, and mushrooms. Uh, all she wants to do is get stoned and hang out with stoners. And uh, from there, we shift scenes to the comic proper, and we see the Titans minus Robin plus Protector. Who? Man, eh, we'll get there. They're bursting through a wall to put the kibosh on a drug deal. Speedy says, By the way, Protector, I'm really glad you're joining us on this case. Protector says, my pleasure, Speedy. I've always wanted to work with the Teen Titans. Mm. Now, the fight is rather short-lived, and the Titans make short work of the scums. Raven envelops the baddies with her soul self, and her empathy powers cause her to be overcome with their pain and drug-addledness. It's not the first time she's going to hug a druggie here, so we'll get used to that. I mean, I mean like, her... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, it's, it's ridiculous. She's uh, going to do that a few more She times. does that a few times, folks. Yeah. <laughs> In the corner of the Titans, see a young boy going into fits. Uh, they modestly clad tar- Starfire. They did have to just change Starfire's usual bikini outfit for this uh, yeah. Keebler-sponsored you know, giveaway. Uh, Starfire flies him right to the hospital, where he dies. Mm. Uh, Starfire takes the news rather poorly and flies off to be destructive, just wrecking a nearby drug lab. And she is mad, boy. She is out She's there pissed. screaming. Tearing up the streets. Uh, At the hospital, the O'Hara's arrive. They're the parents from our earlier confessional scene. Uh, The girl that confessed there. Turns out Debbie's in detox from a bad trip. She, unlike What's-His-Face, will make a full recovery, but will need support to stay straight. Changeling approaches Debbie's snotty little brother. He says, Hi, my name's Changeling. Are you with the O'Hara's? And uh, the brother's name is Teddy. He says, Yeah, I'm Teddy. Debbie's brother, what's it to you? I don't know. I'm just sad. It's sad to see someone so young. You mind? I don't want to talk about this. Uh, The (laughs) Titans talk with the O'Hara's and learn of Debbie's relatively recent change in attitude, during which Raven becomes (laughs) overcome with empathic hoodoo again. Uh, That's sort of her thing. This time, it's the feeling of anguish, and it's emanating from a ragtag crew of geeky kids in the hallway. Which brings us back to the confessional. This time we meet Anina Juarez, 12-year-old, whose similarly redundant history includes pot, hash, hash oil, diluidid, which is an opioid pain medication with a high risk of dependency. It's actually diluidid, and I think it's... Is it diluidid? I I thought it was a a drug that was really big, like an Oscar Wilde's time. I was kind of surprised to see it here. (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe maybe it was still around. I mean, I'm not that knowledgeable, but I was like, you know, I expected it to be like ether, chloroform. I also like to take a snake oil. Take a little bit of snuff, you know? Yeah, a little snake oil. Very weird. Yeah, we, 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 we talked about this off the air. We don't think that George and Marv were really into the underworld. No, I don't think they were into uh, that scene, really. <laughs> she also did cocaine, quaaludes, and downers. Um, and she's the also cabbage. the sister. <laughs> 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 she's, she's also the sister of Juan, who's the boy who just died from drugs. Uh, the Titans approach the kiddies to see if they might get some useful info out of these useless tots. Um, but they run away with the quickness of uncoordinated prepubescence. That is to say, they don't get very far before Speedy and Raven catch up with them. Uh, Roy here begins a rather soft interrogation, but isn't terribly successful. One of the goofy kids starts answering back and actually pokes him in the chest. That doesn't seem too smart. No, probably not. But we go back to the confessional, and this time around, it's Roy Harper Speedy himself. His rap Mm. sheet includes pot, hash, 
coke, LSD, heroin, and, well, everything. But we know mainly for the heroin, frankly. Uh, Roy's heroin use has sadly become one of his defining character traits ever since it was introduced in Snowbirds Don't Fly. That was Green Lantern Volume 2, number 85, by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. This is real famous two-part story you've definitely seen the mm. cover i would think uh we talk about that story and it's behind the scenes drama during part four of our discussion of the comics code authority which is available on our feed right now folks so go check mm-hmm. that out uh roy says that the things he would do for a fix would make people sick and <laughs> i felt the same way yes. we're glad he doesn't elaborate on that <laughs> and his personal you know <laughs> anyway that's not good <laughs> At his personal rock bottom, he contemplated suicide. Back inside, the rest of the team are chatting up Detox Debbie, who is being rather tight-lipped on where she got the junk. That is, who sells to the kids that sell at the school. That is when little brother Teddy pipes up. I have to tell him, Debbie. The mom goes, no, not you two. You're only ten. No, ma'am, I don't take them. I saw what they've done to Debbie. Now, Teddy informs his mother that drugs are all over the school. And to which she turns around and starts yelling at the Teen Titans for not doing enough to keep the streets know, clean. Jeez, what are you, come on, lady. <laughs> Cyborg chimes in. He's like, hey, what do you want? For, you know, give us a break. It's, it's part of their name. Yeah. <laughs> Cyborg turns around. He's like, hey, what do you want us to do? <laughs> uh, he, men- he continues to mention how crazy, sexy, cool drug use is portrayed to be in the media. He also mentions that his old running buddies all fell in with drugs, but he was able to sidestep it, probably because his body was destroyed and replaced with machinery. Uh, cybernetics are Vic's anti-drug. Yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's easy for him to say, though. It's like, yeah. I, I got over it by having to be reconstructed from the ground up in, by, into a metal form. I don't even think he could get high now. I don't think uh, so. Teddy apparently shared the information the Titans needed to make a bust, though they don't think to share it with us, the reader. And so the team takes to the air. Yeah, it's funny. And then along the way, we get to see two beach scenes that they fly over. One has kids drinking and smoking, just being dregs of society. The other has kids being active, playing basketball, right at the edge of a cliff. Like, right, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. So if I had to guess, I would say the latter group was probably more high. I'd be like, wow, these guys probably, really, don't, right? they really don't care about their life or limb. You know, goodness, <laughs> what are they on? They, they must be on acid and hash oil. Acid and LSD. Goodness. They smoked way too much mushrooms. Get them out of there. They smoked the cocaine. Um, The Titans land just in time to witness a helicopter landing and being unloaded into a van. We learn here that Protector usually works alone, but has been known to assist the customs service. Sure. Uh, Next up, we're back to the confessional where we meet 14-year-old Joseph Cummings. His father's a police officer, and his use record includes pot, Hash oil, uppers, downers, PCP, acid, and glue, Mm. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, He says he's been feeling pretty run down of late and hopes it's nothing more serious than his rampant drug use. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Hope it's not mono, you know. The drug use would explain pretty much everything. Uh, Was he kissing toilet seats? Yeah, really. Uh, We rejoin the story a few days later, minutes before Juan's funeral. And Anina, as one might expect, is kind of sad that her, her brother's dead on this somber day, to which our friend Joseph decides he might be in the market for a pick-me-up. And so he tries getting her to smoke a joint and maybe putting the fun back in funeral. Anina goes, I don't know, Joey. I don't know anything anymore. I'm so confused. Joseph says, hey, don't listen to the cops. What do they know about what's good for us? 
Come on, Annie. You're one of us, and this stuff is good. I'm your friend, Annie. Aren't you mine? Come on, dude. Just smoke the joint yourself already. I, the, the, the peer pressure here. I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. We we were teenagers. I know. I know. It we was, were. It was the long ago. This is you know <laughs> before the uh, Earth orbited the sun, but. You know, I, I experienced peer pressure. It was never like this. It was it was usually like, hey, you want to get high? No. All right. Oh, good. More for me. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, good. I was, was going to hit you up for five bucks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Anita decides toking is the better part of it. and sucks <laughs> it down. Uh, meanwhile, the Titans arrive at the mountaintop base of operations for the evil drug pushers. Sure. Seriously. <laughs> uh, Starfire wrecks the fools with ease. Uh, back at the funeral, Juan's being laid to rest. Anina and her pals begin chuckling. They're rather tickled by the eulogy, it seems. Yeah, it's kind of inappropriate. The free says, He was a fine boy, loved boy Minnie. His passing will be long felt. Now the blonde kid named Roger goes, <laughs> Long felt. <laughs> yeah. Joseph says, Fine boy, he was bad, real bad. And Anina goes, Yeah, bad boy, real bad. <laughs> Uh, Anina's parents are kind of shocked and dismayed by this, and when they question her, she runs away. And we're going to see a few angsty addicts fleeing uh, the scene in these issues. It's kind of their, <laughs> it's kind of their go-to move. <laughs> we we go back to the conf- <laughs> <laughs> what? Go to the confessional, and would you look at this kid? Goodness! Holy cow! He is the thirteen-year-old Henry Catlin. <laughs> I feel like this kid. He, he looks like. He, he must be someone George Perez knows, right? I mean, he looks so <laughs> looks like someone, but you know, by the name, I would think he might be the guy who plays Superman in the movies, but not by the looks. Close, of him. yeah, close. <laughs> nah, the kid looks like he, you know, like in the early '90s, you'd have like all those like weird Disney movie, like live action movies where yeah. there were kids who played sports, but they were terrible, and they would still win at the end. And there was always that like heavy set red haired kid with the freckles. Mm-hmm. It looks like him, but he I think be on him. the team. As a matter of fact, I'm yeah. There was a show in the '90s called Hang Time. You ever see this show? It was kind of a uh, yes, I think so. And there was there was a fat redheaded kid on that team too. And it was like, <laughs> why would you have a fat a... kid on a basketball team? Good, what the heck? <laughs> uh, but I know the reason you hate him is the curly hair. I know that's your problem. That, the curly red hair is a trigger for me. Yeah. Uh, he could also be Pat from Saturday Night Live. Definitely for the the body shot. It's not <laughs> not 100 percent clear, folks. I'm just telling nope. you. Just put it there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this this clown has used alcohol, pot, hash, PCP, mushrooms, and he stops halfway through his spiel to wipe away tears. He's not so tough when his crew ain't around. Um, we shift scenes across town where the Titans are dealing damage to yet another group of street dealers, <laughs> including a scene in which it appears that Donna Troy rips the still-beating heart yeah. out of one of them. Wow. When she says, just say no, she ain't messing around. I mean, it, it makes a spack sound, but yeah, it, yes. looks, it looks like she's punching through his and chest a, into his back. It's horrible. Yeah, it's like a lump in his back. <laughs> <laughs> now the day is saved, and the feds arrive to arrest the scums. Seeing the hubbub, another group of addicted kids approach to find out what's up. <laughs> this causes Raven to fall victim <laughs> to her empathic hoodoo once more. And she runs the gamut of emotions and effects of drug use. Yeah, and she'll do this again, folks. And she really should write nope. a post-it note. You know, do not uh, do, do not go my empathic thing with drug addicts, please. Speedy gives a rousing speech about how the kids ought to get detoxed, and as luck would have it, at that very moment, the kids we've been following decide enough is enough, and they ought to get detoxed. So we head to our final confessional scene and meet Roger Levine, or Levine, perhaps. 
He's the elder addict and is positively ancient 15 years old. He's used alcohol, pot, hash, hash oil, cocaine, uppers, downers, PCP, acid, mushrooms, glue. The gamut, folks, is not a drug he hasn't done. Uh, And he knows that his use has overtaken his life and understands it's time for a change. We wrap up with Speedy and Protectors sitting in a group session with the kids. They preach a bit, and then they leave. And actually, then there's a whole workbook at the yes. end. Uh, the end yeah, of all there's of the these. activity guide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't get into that. It's something you have to see, and then when you see it, you're going to kind of kind of have regretted looking at it, but it's basically, yeah. it all ends with a pledge, though, right, which I thought was interesting. It which does. Was a big a legally binding thing. document. Right. <laughs> that was a big thing in the age. Like, men, like, Mothers Against Drunk Driving had that, too, that you would have a pledge that if you were ever drunk, you would have they would come pick you up, no questions asked. No questions asked. asked. Yep. A whole bunch of nonsense. A lot of contractual agreements going on between parents and children <laughs> in the 80s for some reason. <laughs> Wanted to keep everything tickety-boo, you know, just all yes. nice and legal. Uh, one, I got to say, Chris, before you head out, it, one drug that's missing, and right, rightly so, is crack. Because, yeah. you know, crack was around at this time, but at this time it had not... In 83, been a big deal, yeah. Not really a big deal, definitely not in white neighborhoods, you know, and frankly, not even so much on the East Coast, although I'm sure there are people that lived in the South Bronx that would disagree with that. Probably. Uh, but I mean, two or three years from now, that would, this book would have been an anti crack book. Oh, 100%. Right. It wouldn't have, they wouldn't even mention acid and, and downers, for God's sake. You know, <laughs> and hash oil. Hash oil. They'd be like, yeah, hash, hash oil. So, anyway, I, I, it was something that really stuck out to me because oh, they named so many drugs, but not. Crack. crack. I'm sure. Like, I'm sure Marv and George probably didn't even know that it existed at the time. So it was I gotta wonder. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're not done yet. Oh no. <laughs> we have the American soft drink industry presents DC Comics: The New Teen Titans in cooperation with the President's Drug Awareness Campaign, 1983, by Marv Wolfman and Ross Andrew. <laughs> the story title is Battle. The story opens with the Titans and their associate protector. They make it clear that he's an associate here. Uh, staking out a drug drop at an amusement park. This feature, uh, this issue features Kid Flash as the auxiliary member instead of Speedy. Uh, the ensuing fight is rather pedestrian, except when Pro hurls a pair of pushes through a plate glass window. I think he's got some uh, anger issues oh, here. Yeah. And he's going to be sitting in on some support groups. I think he needs to attend one. Uh, (laughs) After the bust, the Titans chat with the authorities and protect the ass to speak to Wally in private. As it turns out, Pro, this is Jason Hart, his cousin Ted Hart has just moved to Blue Valley, which is a bustling little drug center. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He's a recovering addict, and he'd like for Wally to maybe keep an eye on him, which Wally, being the uh, nice fella he is, is totally cool with. Sure. So the very next day, he Wally meets Ted and walks him to school. During the walk, Ted shares his struggles and lets him know just how bad things got. At school, Wally introduces Ted to a girl named Amy King. While they chat, they overhear another couple arguing about drug abuse. Wally sees this as a good time to exit. Seems reasonable to leave a recovering addict just as a potential trigger is taking place like a foot away from him. Yes. You know, when when when, when uh, protector asked him to keep an eye on him, Wally was like, "Yeah, I'll keep it. Whatever. One, you know, two two seconds a day is enough time. Anyway, I think so. Uh, we next follow Ted as he walks through the halls of Blue Valley High, and it's like every kid there is a drug dealer or drug addict. I mean, I went to everyone. I went to New York City public school, and it wasn't this uh, rife with drugs. I'll tell you that. Um, Ted runs into Brian, who was part of that argumentative couple earlier. 
Ryan offers Ted a good time, but Ted lets him know he's clean. He, he's not into that, and at this point, that, that, that's okay with them. On their way to class, they pass almost a stereotypical 1980s movie, High School Villain. This guy. <laughs> oh, this this guy is looks so good. He's he's sleazy looking. He actually looks a lot, you know, a lot of these guys look a little bit older. This guy, too, looks like he's in his late 30s, mm-hmm. early 40s. At least. Uh, he's got mirrored sunglasses. He's wearing them indoors. Uh, his name his name is Adam, right? Uh, yeah, that's drunk. Adam. He's got a leather jacket. Oh, God, he, I mean, he's incredible. His girlfriend has bright pink hair and goes by the name Coral, and she makes eyes at Ted as he passes. And who could blame her? Not every day you get a 40-year-old <laughs> classmate in high school, which is to, That's say, to say, you know, Ted's old. Ted looks he pretty looks old. old. He's uh, ragged. While in class, Ted is a star pupil, and after class, he leaves with Amy, and Coral looks on, and she's not too happy about that. Now we jump ahead a few weeks with a montage segment. Hey, this really is an 80s flick. Uh, Anyway, uh, Ted and Amy grow closer, and the Titans, if you remember them, they keep trying to keep the streets clean. Uh, We return to real time on a day that Ted notices Brian buying a gram of snow from Adam. (laughs) They lay on a mound so Brian can smoke it. Seriously. Uh, He's putting it in a joint. Uh, they're approached by Coral, who offers them a joint laced with angel dust. Teddy declines, and so she questions his manhood. Not surprisingly, he lights up and sucks it down. Nearby, Adam looks on, but we can't tell because he's wearing his mirrored shades. If he's, annoyed that, if he's annoyed that his gal is hanging around with these goofs, or if he's happy that he just got himself a new customer. Another month passes, and Ted has become a holy terror. He lashes out at teachers and classmates, and he storms out of the school. Amy and Linda, who's Brian's girlfriend, decide they maybe should let Wally West know what's going on. Yeah. Which just tells us how vigilant an eye he's been keeping on the hard boy. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, obviously, like, where, where would you walk into school and you didn't, you didn't talk to him again? You were just like, oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> just, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I kept one eye on him. Goodbye, you know. Now, Wally thanks him for the hot tip and decides he's probably to tell the protector, who's in the middle of facilitating a parent-child drug abuse group. Uh, where a stone-cold addict that he's working with couldn't be older than seven. <laughs> this kid is tiny. I know. <laughs> Either he's like seven or whatever he's been taken has severely stunted his growth. He is small. That's what they say. Uh, Smoking will stunt your growth. <laughs> it does. Uh, now, joking aside, uh, we appreciated the inclusion of the scene because it actually discussed psychological addiction, which is, especially in a PSA, it's usually overshadowed by the physical oh, yeah. you know, withdrawal. Yeah. stuff. They make it so, you know, one puff of hash oil and you'll be, you know, an <laughs> addict for life. Don't snort that hash. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> now, after the meeting, Wally tips off Pro and they zip into action. Uh, then they arrive just as Ted and Brian are trying to buy some junk from Adam. Gotta mention here that Protector swoops in on a line that couldn't possibly be attached to anything, but that is... Nope. Fairly typical comp book stuff, you know, but yeah, it's it's a little it's a little silly. Also, anyway, we'll we'll talk more about the protector later and why <laughs> yeah. he might be on a line. Uh, once their protector turns into the a lecture robot and starts educating the boys, and they're like, "Okay, yeah, bye." I mean, it's, see ya. Which I, I like that too, because that is how I would have reacted. I'd be like, uh, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> this is what I this is what I need to hear. Uh, we follow Ted home, where he lashes out at his parents and shoves down his father, proclaiming, I need a hit! Get out of my way! <laughs> uh, 
Ted returns to school where Adam still happens to be hanging out. He lives there. He lives in that in that schoolyard. I mean, he where must. else? Where else could he be? Uh, and chatting with Coral. And Ted eavesdrops and, and to learn that Coral was just using him to make Adam jealous. <laughs> what do you know? It worked. The oldest tricks always do. You know, it's a classic. This is too much for Ted to process, so he barges into the boys' room, where his luck would have it, Buddy Brian's just about to snort a line. Ted gets grabby, wanting some of that snow for himself, which causes Brian's butterfingers to spill it all over the disgusting bathroom floor. And then they both drop to their knees, really they're on their stomachs, yes. press their faces to the ground in hopes of snorting at least some of it. it it's hilarious and pathetic at the same time. It's so unbelievable. Uh, this is probably the most depraved scene we're going to get, and it is, it is gross to consider, although... I mean, you know, nowadays they would have drawn the uh, bathroom with, like, actual, you know, fecal yeah. water on the ground. Yeah, anyway, probably. It's not, it's not, Puddles, yeah. This is, this is more implied grossness, uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it's funny and sad. Not getting adequately high, though, off those few specks on the bathroom floor, the boys <laughs> run back to Adam to get more stuff. He, of course, we know where he is, and he's, <laughs> he's, he's fine. Out. Uh, sadly, they haven't got the green to buy the green, so no dice. As a consolation prize, Adam tosses them a really gross, kind of lumpy-looking joint, which probably consists of whatever he'd skimmed out of the cat pad this morning. It was all, like, leftovers, I guess. It was disgusting, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, now, Brian and Ted decide they need to come up with some cash quickly. And so, their best cause of action would be to hold up a convenience store. Sure. Unfortunately, they picked the wrong one. <laughs> the shop owner blows a hole in Brian's gut. Ted runs away like a coward, ultimately collapsing on Amy's front lawn, which I'm sure her parents just loved. Uh, around now, the Titans, remember them? They're staking out even more drug dealers. I always thought Blue Valley was like a nice little town. I nope. guess not. <laughs> Rife with drugs. <laughs> the, the other side of the tracks, Blue Valley, I guess. Uh, Raven. Guess what? She gets empathic overload and teleports to Brian's side as he's being loaded into an ambulance. We wrap up this second part at the hospital where Brian and Ted are sharing a room. I guess bullet holes and detox are close enough, right? Uh, yeah. They promise to fly right from that point on. Yep, and everything ends depressingly. And also we, again, have the same workbook Backup and pledge. You yeah, know, the activity guide. guide. I got all those pages up at the blog too. So all right, so those, if, are, if those want, are available. I got to be honest. I kind of wanted to go. There's some of them where they want you to like finish the dialogue. Finish, yeah, like you fill in the balloons. I, def I definitely wanted. There were part of me that wanted to write some uh, inappropriate dialogue in there. So <laughs> you can, we should you, do a contest. Yeah, can, yeah. You can go look at that on on Chris's blog, and uh, if you send us some good ones, we'll uh, put them out there. We'll tweet them mm -hmm. out. So now the third of the PSAs has the best title, I think. The one that really rolls off the tongue here, Chris. <laughs> it's the New Teen Titans, presented by the IBM Corporation in cooperation with the National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth and the First Lady's Drug Awareness Campaign. 1983 by Marv Wolfman and Jovi Cavallari, who did the scripting, I have a feeling. Yeah. Uh, and Adrian Gonzalez. This one is called Problem Child. This one has the best cover, too, has the... Kid, kid running away saying I his lion t-shirt yeah oh it's so it's it's the best one um this issue feels like dc was just fulfilling a contract without wolfman on the script and with gonzalez's art was definitely just a step down from both perez and andrew 
Uh, but Chris says, Jerry, Joey Cavallari has a bit of a stigma with him. It seems like any time a book is winding down or he has clearly become a less of a priority, uh, the book has, his name shows up in the credits. He's kind of like a pariah from, uh, he's kind of like pariah from Crisis and Infinite Earths that way. Writer Ben Robb would fill a similar role in the 1990s. I also think, Chris, though, it's possible that when they started up this venture of doing a, a drug awareness book, I mean, as you know, Keebler showed up later in the process. Mm-hmm. We'll kind of get into that a little bit, yeah. you know, how that affected it later. I have a feeling once they started it and they, they the word got out, everyone wanted a piece. And that's everyone why wanted it, yeah. as we go along through this, more and more stuff attached to the title. You know what I mean? Now it's like, yeah. oh, every, every, now the Nancy Reagan's in there and the, 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 this <laughs> campaign and IBM. And, you know, everyone wants a little bit. They all want they all want uh, their day in the sun. So that might have been it, too. But it's this one definitely seems like the most of an afterthought. Yeah. Um, this issue opens with Lois Lane emceeing an assembly that the Titans and Protector will be speaking at. Outside, there are several youngsters token up as they do. This isn't just weed, however. This crop has been dusted with it, with uh, angel dust, just so we're not, not pesticides. We mean yeah. <laughs> PCP, just so we're clear about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse is the leader of this preteen drug ring, and uh, he gets his goods from his older brother, David. Uh, he gets nice and lit before heading into the auditorium. That was nice of the Titans to wait for him to do that. Sure. <laughs> uh, and he sits down and proceeds to heckle the heroes on stage. Of course, when they direct their attention towards him, his eyes well up and he runs away. Wimp. <laughs> That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, Changeling gives chase in the form of a bird. And we say gives chase, we mean it. He follows him through town, through a field, and all the way to a cliff's edge. How long does this go on? I don't know. It seems like pages. Good. <laughs> he, he finally gets the kid cornered, and, he, and he's, trying to, he's t- trying to tell him, you know, I'm not here to hurt you. So he takes the form of a rhinoceros. That, that makes sense, sure. A cuddly rhinoceros, his pal. <laughs> now back at the auditorium, the Titans chat with Jesse's folks. They reveal that the kid looks up to his older brother, supplier, and bit of a rebel, David. We'd say that they're the stupidest parents in this issue, but we're not even close. Oh, man. Uh, Raven, suddenly <laughs> overcome by her empathic powers, and teleports to Jesse at the cliffside. Back at the cliff, Rhino Gar is just about to cause Jesse to go off the edge. At the point at which he plummets, Raven pops in and, and engulfs him in her soul self. In the blackness, he has a uh, chat with his brother, in which he sees a physical manifestation of what David's drug use will lead to. He's called haggard and skeletal. Wow. Uh, he would uh, he exits Raven World a changed boy. By this point, the Titans and his parents have arrived at the cliff. He hugs his folks. And it would appear that uh, Raven's getting high off her own supply of empathy here, and she begins to hallucinate. Uh, Starfire scoops her up and takes her to the hospital, which is Starfire's job for these books. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Transport. Jess- <laughs> yes. Jesse proclaims that he's straight edge from that point on, and he'll make it his mission to make sure his friends go clean as well. This predictably leads to him being called a narc. Sure. Because as luck would have it, his friends are all getting high in a nearby bush during his transition. This whole time, yeah, during his, his, his come-to-God moment. Later mm-hmm. on, the assembly continues. Really? The longest assembly <laughs> I've ever heard of. i, I got to assume that the crowd just sat there watching Lois take notes or something, and maybe she tried out her stand-up act. And maybe. maybe, maybe What's she, the deal with airline peanuts? She pulled out a filibuster. I don't know. She went on. <laughs> uh, and this is where we see that Jesse's folks are the dumbest people in whatever town this is, uh, you know, Blue Valley 2. Yes. Uh, one mother says she believes that all kids do drugs, and it's a rite of passage. 
kind of begs the question: What are you doing at an anti-drug assembly? Yeah, I know. It, it's like it's like going to church to tell everyone that God doesn't exist. Like, I know. this is not the place for anyway. Uh, the protector he ain't keyed on such stupidity, folks, and thus gives a monologue which would take about two pages to fully transcribe, and would give even Chris Claremont pause. We shift scenes and finally meet Big Brother Dave. He's looking for a free fix from his big-time pushers. You see, Dave himself is just a low-level scrub. He promises that he's good for it. After all, he's got the entire junior high school hooked. Uh, they beat his ass, though, and send him packing. That's how yeah. de dealers do business. <laughs> With Dirty Dave. Um, now, back at the assembly, the parents start ganging up on the Titans, asking why they're not stopping the drug menace. God. At which point, Lois Lane actually chimes in and says, she's all like, hey, dumbass, why don't you start acting like a parent? Yeah, really. Well, Go figure. Titans do everything. Again, I have to reiterate, they're teenagers. You know, good. Yes, they're kids. Gracious. <laughs> Now, the Titans, unfortunately, take their tongue lashing to heart, and they slump their heads and their shoulders, and oh, man. they decide to get proactive. They're going to abandon the assembly again and go look for Dirty Dave. Doesn't take them long to descend on Dastardly Dave's dilapidated dicks. <laughs> but seriously, though, it's like a rundown shack or like on yeah. just a, yet another cliffside, too. That's where drug dealers like to do their things. <laughs> but it might be on the shore because it's drawn differently depending on the panel. Oh, really? <laughs> Inside, the junior high posse is narking to Dave about Jesse becoming a narc. Uh -huh. He hands over a joint, which begs the question, why didn't he just smoke it himself when he was Jonesing earlier? Well, see, that's, uh, this is his reserve joint, you see. This, this is the cat pan joint. Exactly. He, he, needed the, <laughs> he needed a fresh one. This is for emergencies. He got this one from Adam Monday. Yeah. <laughs> the schoolyard. Uh, he, he gives them the, uh, the joint. He tells the kids to run off so nobody catches them in the act. Unfortunately for him, the Titans have just arrived. And they put the fear of God in him. Donna slices a car in two with her lasso. Corey destroys a tree. Oh. Uh, Vic grabs him and gets a good look at his track marks. And then they let him go. But not before slipping a tracker on him. Of course. They know that's the old superhero trick. Donna Troy mm -hmm. really is kind of violent in these issues, isn't she? She's she does not wrecking, mess around. Wrecking a car, punching a guy's <laughs> heart through his chest. Like, geez, what is your story here? Uh, back at the school, Jesse's rat level is being tested. His friends want to, him to prove he ain't no rat, and in order, in order to do so, he's going to have to take a toke. He declines and gives a rousing speech, which actually results in the group of kids giving a round of applause. It reminds me of this. It's like a subreddit yeah. where people share stories that, like, totally 100% happened. I've seen some of these, these amazing <laughs> stories, yeah. <laughs> They always seem to end with the storyteller receiving rounds of applause and like hundred dollar bills. Of course, that's, that's, the that's general public. Very typical thing. I've seen that happen all the time. You know, people <laughs> stand time, up. You know, every time you know I see someone yell at a dog, I say, "Hey, you shouldn't <laughs> yell at that." And then everyone stops and everyone... looks, and and then suddenly, and peace reigns for hours. It's it's quite nice. Um, peace and hundred dollar bills reign. <laughs> I, I wish. Uh, not only does he get the applause, but his friends decide, "Hey." Maybe we should go and clean sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Maybe we should stop doing drugs, too. Back with the Titans, they've tracked Dingy Dave and his dirty dungarees to a building that has the word warehouse on it. <laughs> Probably a warehouse. Uh, inside of it are the big-time sellers. Titans burst in, crack some skulls. We wrap up with Dave and Detox seeing the error of his ways. Sadly, the story ends before he can get out of the hospital and be killed by elite, the elite drug dealers he's just ruined. But we can only assume that's what happens. 
I would imagine, yeah. And this this also has the same uh, workbook. The same, yeah, 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 the same activities. I mean, these, these are 32-page issues, right? And that's basically what it is. We get 20 story so. and, like, 10 of, you know, activities. 10 of uh, activity guide and uh, legally binding document. The legally binding document that you have to sign. <laughs> so uh, these were, this is a real corker here, Chris, let me tell you. Yes. These these have been if you if you want to go uh, read more about these or see images, Chris has reviewed all of these on his yeah. blog. Uh, I'll put links. To, I'll put a link to like directly to these reviews uh, in the show notes. Cool. But I gotta say, these weren't as stupid as they could have been. No, um, no, they could have been far worse. I think even if this had been stories in the regular Titan, you, you know, New Teen Titan series, it wouldn't have been out. It wouldn't have been that out of place, yeah. It wouldn't have been. They, I don't think they would have been your favorite stories. No. But they were very street level, very like you know grounded stories. You know, maybe some of the terminology wasn't quite right, but <laughs> I, there were worse attempts out there. And I, I remember reading them when I was a kid because we yes. both grew up in the Just Say No era, so we know what mm-hmm. that was like. Um, but of course, there is a lot more to talk about. As always, we got to wrap up the creators and we got to tell you about the protector and what he's all about, as well mm-hmm. as talk about some other public service ads or, or, or issues that have been in comics so we'll do all that when we come back right after the break illiteracy and school dropouts drug use and experimentation child abuse and abduction these are only a few of the problems facing today's school age youth problems which can and must be addressed but where do we begin this is a job for superman and Batman, Wonder Woman, the Teen Titans, and the established characters known as the Superpowers Team. Your company, in cooperation with DC Comics, and in conjunction with federal and state government programs, can use these heroic characters to stimulate discussion about these and other pressing problems in your community through the cost-efficient, proven effective use of educational comic books. What are the advantages? On network television and in syndication, the animated adventures of Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, the Teen Titans, and the rest of the Superpowers team are seen by an estimated weekly audience of 40 million school-age children and teens. In addition to their appearances in live-action TV shows and films, as well as their success in comic book form with young readers across the country. Children and teens trust these characters to give them the right answers and proper advice. So when the Superpowers team speaks to kids, they do so with an authority and commanding a respect that cannot be overestimated. Government agencies and programs handling the distribution of these materials, your positive community outreach message can reach millions of students at a cost per classroom of as little as 15 cents per package. What are the results? Among DC Comics' recent corporate clients have been IBM, American Honda Motor Company, DuPont, the Keebler Company, and the National Soft Drink Association, working in cooperation with the White House Private Sector Initiatives Office, the President's Drug Awareness Campaign, and the United States Department of Transportation. With funding from these sources, DC Comics created materials designed to help fight drug abuse and to promote good traffic safety habits. In addition to the educational comic books themselves, these classroom kits included study guides, teacher aids, posters, film strips, and student activity books. 
each with the name of the sponsoring company imprinted on them, and each conveying the message that these companies care about America's young people. The drug awareness campaign, using the Teen Titan characters, was aimed at grade schoolers and included a personal message from First Lady Nancy Reagan as part of her crusade against child drug use. The packages were distributed to schools throughout the U.S. and were used in classrooms by more than 20 million children. I think it shows kids what can happen to them if they take drugs. It was telling me about drugs and it's not good for your body. By the time they're in junior high school, if there's a problem existing, it's too late to deal with it almost, or high school. So I think dealing with going, you know, to the fourth grade on it, or fifth grade, whatever they're, they're aiming this for, is an excellent idea. The traffic safety books, featuring the Supergirl character, were distributed as part of the United States Department of Transportation's National Safety Belt campaign, with a foreword by Secretary of Transportation Elizabeth Dole. Targeted at junior and senior high schools, the Supergirl comic books and study materials were used and remembered by 93% of the students to whom they were given. We think having the Supergirl book directed right at the young people who are just learning uh, to drive and getting their licenses will go a long way towards teaching them the value of safety belts and therefore save a lot of lives and reduce a lot of serious injuries. A follow-up survey showed that 80% of those who read these DC comic books now use their safety belts more often than they used to. What can your company do? While these previous DC Comics efforts have proven enormously successful, they are only a beginning. Drug use and traffic safety remain problems, as do illiteracy and school dropouts, child abuse and abduction, teenage pregnancy, and many other crises. But any one of these problems that can be dealt with in a classroom situation can also be dealt with in the positive, proven effective way of using the DC Comics Superpowers team. Gaining your company access to the public schools, giving you a high profile as a corporate citizen, and earning for you the community goodwill your company both desires and deserves. The Superpowers team is ready to protect and educate all of our children, but they need your help. We at DC Comics look forward to working with your company to help find answers to the problems of tomorrow's adults today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to do some Wolfman talk now. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the first volume of New Teen Titans that would run for 40 issues, plus two annuals, uh, running until 1984. At that point, it transformed into Tales of the Teen Titans and would run through issue 91 in 1988, plus an additional annual. Uh, when the switch was made, the second volume of the New Teen Titans began August 1984. These comics ran concurrently with Tales of the Teen Titans, but the stories were six months apart. Uh, this was uh, this is the Baxter paper uh, one that, uh, that people usually uh, refer to it as. Volume 2 would run as... Uh, as New Teen Titans until issue 49, uh, November 1985. After that, they changed it. I guess everyone hit 20. So it was yep. just New Titans after that. Uh, the series, I like to think that the series ran until about issue 90, but it actually ran until about <laughs> until issue 130, uh, February 1986. There were a whole slew of annuals, specials, and a zero issue as well. Yeah, well, Marv, um, Marv jumped off at a time, didn't he? No. Oh, he was out of there to, all the well, way to the he end. He was on there to the bitter end. Wow, all the way through. Bitterest. Through to the 90s. Anyway, uh, 
Other products that he that uh, projects that Marv worked on for DC during the early 1980s included collaborating with artist Gil Kane on the Superman feature in Action Comics, reimagining the character Vigilante with George Perez in New Teen Titans Annual Number no. Two, 1983. We made New York City District Attorney Adrian Chase into a basically a vigilante in a ski wow. mask and bodysuit. And uh, this actually led to a solo vigilante series that ran for 50 issues uh, plus two annuals. Until 1988, although Paul Kupperberg took over the bulk of the writing duties uh, for most of the run. Uh, Marv was only on, I think, for the first six or something like that. Uh, A revival, he also did a revival of Dial H for Hero with Carmine Infantino. And he launched Night Force, a supernatural series drawn by Gene Colan. He had a nearly two-year run on Green Lantern with Joe Staten. And during his run on Green Lantern, Marv would co-create The Omega Men, which had its own little run for a while. Uh, in 1980. Like, uh, well, yep. Sorry. That's me. <laughs> yep. It seemed like he uh, wanted to write the Omega Man a lot more than he wanted to write the Lantern Corps for a little while. <laughs> I, you got that impression. Although he, did, he didn't yeah. have horrible stories, you know. And, no, no, and Staten on art definitely helped things out. Certainly, certainly. Uh, in 1985, Wolfman and Perez launched Crisis on Infinite Earths, a 12 issue maxi series celebrating uh, DC's 50th anniversary. And. Uh, what are we going to say, fixing? <laughs> with quotes. Fixing, yeah. With the, yeah. the, with the thickest of quotes. <laughs> um, Marv would write Adventures of Superman, which was renamed from Superman Volume 1, uh, post-crisis. That began with issue uh, number 424. It's got the uh, the very iconic Jerry Ordway cover, and, uh, yep. and the art was from uh, Ordway as well. This is January of 87. Um, he worked on the reimagining of Superman and his trappings, uh, which, you know, that was the big John Byrne project, mm-hmm. uh, the Man of Steel miniseries. Uh, in particular, Marv would rework Lex Luthor as a, a wealthy Craven executive. Mm-hmm. Instead of just like a crazy mad scientist, crazy mad which scientist. he had been for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now get this. Marv had a disagreement with somebody <laughs> over, <laughs> over a proposed rating system. It led to him being relieved of his editorial position in 1987. Uh, the disagreement was in the form of a public letter to DC, abetted by Alan Moore, Frank Miller, and Howard Chaikin. Uh, no strangers to controversy themselves. Yep. DC offered to reinstate Wolfman as an editor, provided he apologized for making his criticisms of the rating system public, rather than to keep it internal to the company. He declined to do so. Uh, it wasn't. He didn't even want to walk back his position. Just nope. apologize just for airing their dirty laundry. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny of all those people, he's the only one that had a desk job, you know, a day job to lose. Yep. So there it is. Exactly. Uh, he would write the, uh, the Batman Year 3 storyline that went through Batman 436 through 439, August, September 1989. This would be uh, the first appearance of Tim Drake, who uh, shows up as a tiny little tot yep. in this story. But, you know, this would lead, he would lead to being eventually the third Robin. So, mm-hmm. uh, And then in the early 1990s, Wolfman worked at Disney Comics. He wrote scripts for a seven-part DuckTales story called Scrooge's Quest, as well as several other comics. He was editor of the comics section on the Disney Adventures magazine for the early years of its publication. Outside of Disney, he wrote a six-issue miniseries, The Man Called A-X, for Malibu Comics in 1994. And as the 1990s wore on, Wolfman turned to writing primarily for animated series, something he dabbled on throughout the 80s as well. I remember seeing his name on old G.I. Joe and Transformers cartoons. 
Um, in the late 90s, he, d- he developed uh, the Transformers TV series Beast Machines, which aired on Fox Kids for two seasons from 1999 to 2000. And I, even I remember enjoying it, and I was a young adult at the time, not a kid. Uh, before the release of the Blade motion picture, which was August 1998, distributed by New Line Cinema, Wolfman sued Marvel Characters Incorporated over ownership of all characters he had created for Marvel Comics. Marv's oh, yeah, claim, yeah, this was a big one. Uh, Marv's <laughs> claim that he did not sign work for hire agreements when creating Blade and Nova, but the non-jury court determined that Marvel had used these characters sufficiently without contest since then to make Marv's suit spurious. John Byrne was called to the trial, none other than the great John Byrne, <laughs> uh, to testify on behalf of Marvel Comics. He caused quite a commotion, causing Marv's lawyer to ask that Byrne be dismissed from the court. He wasn't, by the way. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> to, the, to the Comics Journal in 2001, Marv said, he, referring to Byrne, was making faces whenever I looked in his direction. <laughs> because the comments I had to make referred to him, he would start to make faces. He would move up and down. There was a wall in front of him, a couple feet high, where the witnesses are behind. He would, like, lower himself so, <laughs> so I couldn't see him, and then raise himself up. He would start shaking his head, no, as if I was making a mistake, and he flustered me, because I'm trying to remember specific events. He was acting very much like a two-and-a-half-year-old child who has not had any riddling. Wow. We've never really gotten along well ever since Superman, but I was unaware that we had anything more than a difference of opinion on work. I never had any problems with John personally, but obviously he had one with me. It could be because of Luther, who was my creation, turned out to be more important and lasting than most of the things he had added to the mythos. Wow. I, I would... <laughs> you know, he, he created Lex Luthor from the ground up. Sure, right? yeah. He never existed before 1950. Yeah, and I love you going, uh, he, goes, he goes right to, you know, that, anyway, it's a, the professional jealousy, jealousy yeah. Uh, I would hope to think that's not the reason. I'd almost prefer thinking that I'd done something without knowing it, because that would be really childish if it was just based on things of that sort. I have no idea why. You'd have to ask him. It was very hurtful. All I can say is I was terribly hurt and terribly bothered by it, and I'm sure that people could understand that when all attention is paid to you on a court, on the witness stand, and you're trying very hard to say your piece and answer the questions that are very difficult to answer, that decorum and civilization sort of demands that the people in the room (laughs) at least have a modicum of respect and let the process be done. (laughs) Wow, Marv. That's a mouthful. Uh, That's a marvel. Um, (laughs) I was incredibly hurt, more than you can imagine. You would have to have been there to know the effect of what John did. And I'm sure he probably doesn't care because he did it. But it was the most hurtful thing that's ever happened to me. And I've had people scream at me. But it's always over something that I may have done and he may have done or whatever. This was just hurtful beyond belief. Jim Shooter, another friend of his, was also subpoenaed to testify on behalf of Marvel. But Wolfman had no problem with his behavior. Yeah. At least that he made public. Well, I, I mean, he kind of held it up as if to say that he was so, you know, non non biased yeah, yeah. about it that you know he was like able to, you know, respect Jim Shooter's position. But John, I mean, you ever think of like not looking at John? You could do that too. Just don't look at John Byrne. But anyway, <laughs> he's like Burns, like whistling in the corner, like yeah, exactly. Or he's like running around. He's running around behind the uh, witness stand. You know what I mean? Just making a making a commotion. He's choking himself with his tongue. Yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> Making a real cut up. Anyway, uh, 
Into the 21st century, Marv has kept busy writing movie adaptations, scripts for animation, video game plots, and adaptations of those, including Batman Arkham Knight in 2015, and even sometimes here and there comic books. We'll talk about those primarily, since that's what this podcast is about, folks. Uh, he wrote uh, Infinite Crisis, Secret Files, and Origins number one, April 2006. And that same year, starting with issue number 125 in December 2006, Wolfman began writing DC's Nightwing series. It was initially scheduled to be a four-issue run. Wolfman's run was expanded into a baker's dozen issues. That would be 13, folks. And finished with number 137, December 2007. In this run, he introduced a new vigilante, Dorian Joe Chase, brother to Adrian Chase. Wolfman consulted with writer Jeff Johns on several issues of the Teen Titans that followed Infinite Crisis, which I've been read, which I read recently, and I thought was quite good. In uh, 2006, Wolfman was editor, editorial director of Impact Comics, no relation to the DC Comics imprint that was way earlier, right? That was in the 90s. Yeah, that was the 90s. Uh, this was a publisher of manga-style educational books. In 2007, Wolfman published a novel through iBooks based on Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's interesting. Rather than following the original plot, he created a new story starring the Barry Allen Flash that takes place during the original Crisis story. Hmm. So I'm kind of curious to know at least what the contents of that are, if not really prepared to read the book. Uh, In 2011, he and Perez completed the new Teen Titans games graphic novel, which they had begun working on in the late 1980s. Yep. I've never read that. Have you have you ever seen that? It's it's okay. Yeah. Um it's it's not uh it, it's nice to have it, but it's uh it, it shows its age. Uh, well, I might not run to it then. But uh and most recently he wrote a six issue Raven miniseries for DC Comics that I reviewed for the uh Weird Science website. How did you like it? Uh, not very much, to be frank. <laughs> uh by the end I absolutely despised it. But you know, you're gonna have to go I would say read my reviews, don't read the comics. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> uh, currently, Marv Wolfman is married to Noel Watkins, and they live in Southern California. Now, George Perez's wrap-up. In uh, Action Comics number 544, June 1983, uh, he designed Lex Luthor's trademark battle suit. Uh, this would be used for the Superpowers toy line by Kenner and is still in use today. Yep. Uh, Perez took a leave of absence from New Teen Titans in 1984 to focus on his next project with Marv, which is Crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perez uh, inked the final, uh, in quotes, issue of Superman, which was the final issue of Superman for quite some time, Mm -hmm. uh, number 423, uh, September 1986. It was part one of Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, written by Alan Moore and penciled by Kurt Swan. Imagine uh, being, I mean, I'm sure Kurt Swan wasn't hmm. that starstruck, but imagine being inked by George Perez. I would I know, know right? I mean, like, wow, okay, I, <laughs> I am somebody now, you know, but I'm sure Kurt mm-hmm. was like, ah, whatever. Yeah, because when Dan Jorgens did uh, the, the second volume of Teen Titans, uh, Perez was his anchor. Wow. Um, that's That's got to be crazy. Uh, now, he was one of the artists on the landmark Batman number four. 400, October 1986. That was a monster of a book. Wolfman and Perez teamed up again to produce The History of the DC Universe, which was two prestige format issues in 1986, and is actually been written into DC continuity as as an entity. Really? The actual prestige? (laughs) Yeah, because... Because that's what the Manhunters used to do the Millennium thing. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Wow, that's (laughs) so funny. (laughs) 
because the because the history of DC Universe was supposed to be written by Harbinger, and uh, so uh, they found the books. Yeah, <laughs> now he was a uh, he would be he was part of the uh, Wonder Woman reboot in 1987. Uh, it was first it was scripted by Greg Pada, then Len Wein, then finally George Takover himself. Uh, Mindy Newell would co-write the book for about a year. Uh, George left as Pencil of Plotter after number 24, December 1988, but he stayed uh, writing uh, until uh, 62, which is February 1992. And I'm not super familiar with it, but many say this is one of the best the runs definitive, of yeah. a definitive run. Yeah, I've seen a lot of images from it that George drew, and they look great. Uh, ancient, you know, Greek style, whatever, uh, lavishness. Uh, George Perez returned to the Teen Titans with issue number 50, December 1988, when the title was renamed to The New Titans. And this brought a new origin for Donna Troy titled Who is Wonder Girl? And we've talked about that in our Who is Donna Troy episode, all these different yes. many origin stories she's had to have. During his run on Wonder Woman in 1991, uh, it was in 1991 that Perez had some problems working with DC Comics. He cited too much editorial meddling in his War of the Gods storyline that crossed over into other books. And Perez yeah. felt that DC was not doing enough to celebrate Wonder Woman's 50-year anniversary. Even worse by George's estimating, DC did not place War of the Gods in newsstand distribution, which may have been, uh, you know, worse for the book at the time. Sure. Perez had been building up to a marriage between Steve Trevor and Etta Candy in his final issue. When he discovered the DC editors had decided to not only pass the Wonder Woman titles writing to William Mesner Loeb's and have Mesner Loeb's write the final wedding scene, Perez quit the title and separated himself from DC for several years. Perez signed on to the Pencil the Six Issue Limited series Infinity Gauntlet for Marvel Comics, written by Jim Starlin, but due to his problems with DC, he could not finish the series and left after number four, which I'm sure really annoyed him a lot. Uh, Ron Lim would finish that series. It annoyed the people reading the story too. I, it, annoyed, it annoyed me. I, you know, I know it from trade, but you you do see a yep. big change, my friend. And you know that that's a book that really begs for someone that can draw superhero crowd scenes, and there's a it difference. Needed to be epic, yeah. yeah and see. Lim's no slouch, but uh, no. But it, yeah, definitely a step down. Uh, he drew a Breakthrough and Ultra Force from Malibu Comics in 1993. Uh, he says he had no affinity for the character and lost the, the, for the characters, and he lost interest. Uh, he inked the Jurassic Park comic book adaptation of the movie for Topps Comics in 1993, which was uh, penciled by Gil Kane. Uh, drew the four-part miniseries Saxon Violence, Saxon Violins, which was uh, <laughs> November 1993 through January, uh, July 1994 for Marvel's Epic imprint, which uh, was written by Peter David. Uh, sticking with Peter David, he uh, drew the Incredible Hulk Future Imperfect two-part uh, prestige series. This is uh, December 93 to January 94. And this introduced the supervillain Maestro, which is a future version of the Hulk. And, you know, Peter um, David says that George Perez is his favorite collaborator. Or he has That's said, funny, because it, yeah, it. they, they collaborated so infrequently. It yep. uh, must have been uh, one hell of an impression. Well, sometimes sometimes um, the best experiences are the least frequent Sorry, ones, the brief right? ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, uh, he'd eventually come back to DC Comics in December 1996, and he inked those 15 issues of the new volume of uh, Teen Titans, written and penciled by... Dan Jurgens. Uh, Perez had a stint as writer of Silver Surfer uh, through issues 111 through 123, as December 95 to December 96. He also wrote the uh, Superman Silver Surfer intercompany crossover in 1996. That's uh, <laughs> when all the companies were looking for life support. Oh, yeah. And stuff. Oh, we, we better just 
we better just join forces for they were real amenable to crossovers in the late 90s you find yeah. yes now uh february 1998 uh, george began penciling the third volume of the avengers with kurt busick writing he'd stay for three years uh, kurt would stick around for five that's uh one of the better things to come out of uh hero's return yeah. uh hero's return was much better of course than Heroes Reborn, but yeah. Avengers was really, really good. Everyone talks um, about this and, being a, a great run, yeah. It was it was a great run, yeah. Uh, after leaving the Avengers, he and Busick produced, hey, that long-awaited JLA Avengers <laughs> intercompany crossover, which would finally see print in late 2003. Perez also worked for CrossGen early in the new century. <laughs> uh, this is that company that made you sit in a desk yep. <laughs> all in the same room. Uh, he penciled four issues of CrossGen Chronicles. Uh, his main project for the company was penciling Solus, and CrossGen went bankrupt. Yeah, pretty Not rapidly. To make it, yeah. But he, uh, at least he gave it a shot. You know, I guess at that time you didn't know which way the wind was going to blow, so you try whatever, you know, try anything. Sure. Uh, Perez returned to Wonder Woman in 2001, co-writing a two-part story in issues 168 through 169 with writer-artist Phil Jimenez. He drew the first 10 issues of DC's The Brave and the Bold, that would be Volume 2, 2007 to 2010, with writer Mark Wade. Perez drew the cover to Wonder Woman number 600, August 2010, as well as some interior art. This was kind of an artist jam inside there. Yeah. And in 2001... For the new 52 relaunch, George wrote the Superman series, art by Jesus Marino and Nicholas Scott. He remained until issue number six and kind of left angrily in July 2012. He explained his departure from Superman as a reaction to the level of editorial oversight he experienced. He wasn't the first uh, leave. I think Andy Diggle left before him. There were basically in a lot of people were leaving. People were just walking off of books sometimes before the first issues came out. He was one of the very early ones, though. Um, so the problems he had with the editorial oversight included inconsistent reasons given for rewrites of his material, the inability of editors to explain to him basic aspects of the new 52 Superman (laughs) status quo, which I I can't either, so so I I feel their pain, uh, such as whether his adoptive parents were still alive, even, yeah, early on you had no idea, and restrictions imposed by having to be consistent with Action Comics, which was set five years earlier than Superman. Of course, the situation was complicated by the fact that action writer Grant Morrison was not forthcoming about his plans. And I think yeah. last I heard, Perez had his own series at Valiant? At Boom. At Boom? Is that what it is? It's, uh, it's not for either of the big two, but uh, no. he's still and working. It, and it's not coming out regularly. Yeah, I mean... I don't think so. Hey, the, the thing is, you know, you see his pencil has not is not sleepy. He's still as good as he ever was, no. I think. Uh, it's really a shame that, that he's got so much bad blood built up with these other companies, but absolutely. what are you going to do? do a lot of good. Mm. do a lot of good. Um, hey, remember that guy, the protector? Yeah, he was weird. He had kind of a Let's... weird head head mask. I don't know what yeah. his thing. My mom saw that, that character. She said, don't wear that when you're out tanning. No. You'll get a real weird looking tan. The wrestler's tan, they call it. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's let's discuss him a bit here. Uh, now, the first issue uh, that we spoke about uh, had already been inked by the time Keebler came on board. The character Robin, who he was replacing, was licensed through Batman to Nabisco. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the uh, the cookie wars of the uh, of the mid eight or the early mid eighties were pretty heated. But how complex um, does it get? And as and as you said, you pointed out, and now having looked at it, I have to agree. I think it was lettered. I think this the whole issue was so. at least lettered in pencil, you know, or something. Yeah, or at least spaced. Spaced yeah. out, yeah. 
Now, uh, this led to them needing to create the protector. Um, now, it's unclear at this point if Nabisco owned Keebler, but it, does, it seems like they didn't. But it was like that shell game hot potato. Yeah, we something about funny earlier. was happening. Um, in any case, they wouldn't want to have their their Batman exclusive spread across two logos. Yeah. Um, Dick Giordano inked uh, the new character directly over Robin at the last <laughs> minute. Um, we, we were thinking here that the the, the issue was was perhaps lettered or yeah. spaced for lettering, because the protector is awkwardly referred to as pro. And uh, you know that that's fine, and yeah, they're they're kids and all. But even Raven calls him pro, which for her would have been extremely informal. Because I I mean, she even called Kid Flash, who she was sort of romantically linked with, she called him Wallace. Everyone had got full names. (laughs) Yeah, she didn't call anybody. And you know, you do see there are some funny looking spacings. You know what I mean? It looks odd. And it looks as I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, that was where that was Robbie. Yeah, you know now it says pro all of a sudden. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're we're pretty sure that that it was lettered, which is what a, what a time to walk back a character at that point in the comic book. Wow. Now the protector would have a a robust uh, future. <laughs> uh, he he appears once after this in in non who's who or or you know little you know ha ha you know poking the ribs tiny titan. Yeah, yeah. Um, he appears in the background of a scene in Titan's Secret Files and Origins number two from October 2000 during a recruitment drive for Titans Los Angeles. Wow. He's just there sitting on a couch by himself while everyone else is having a good time. I mean, come on. This guy works with the U.S. Customs, you know? Give, you know, this guy's a big deal. Sheesh. He is. Uh, yeah, it's such a weird thing. And, and like, uh, definitely, with, like I say, go check out the link in the show notes. You can see Chris's reviews. You can see what Pro looks like. Yeah. There's, you know, he looks like Robin with a stupid costume painted over him. <laughs> There's no question about it. It's a, exactly. Uh, it's really, it's interesting they had to do that. But, I, but by the third PSA, they obviously had worked him in. Yeah. More. So I think by the second one, too, they Probably were more second, aware yeah. of him, you know, at least. But uh, by the third one, they're starting to give you a backstory. He's got a cousin and everything, you know, or whatever. But <laughs> anyway, uh want to talk a little bit about the history of drugs in America. Um the first American anti-drug law was in actually in 1875. I think we get the impression like they were always illegal, yeah. but for for a long time in America's history, there were just there were no restrictions against drugs or not just like using, but whether you could put them in medicines, quote unquote medicines, or you know what the applications were. People would you know where we would pop a Bayer now, people might do heroin. Uh, which will also cure your headache, by the way. So anyway, for a little while. <laughs> the first American anti-drug law was 1875 in San Francisco. This was an ordinance which outlawed the smoking of opium in opium dens. And there is a much larger narrative I can tell here that we're going to totally gloss over. Reacting to popular new soft drinks, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, which are laced with cocaine, back then they were, Francis Willard of Cleveland, Ohio, forms the World's Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1883. They campaigned for a law making temperance education mandatory in public schools in Ohio and win. In 1886, Congress makes such education mandatory in the District of Columbia and in territorial, military, and naval schools. By 1900, all the states have similar laws for anti-temperance, basically what we would call drug awareness education now. In less than, less than two decades in a time before... 
really any kind of widespread communication. That's it, pretty crazy. It really is, yeah. I mean, obviously, people, this was a shared concern among sure. many. That's what it is, I think. Absolutely. I think, it, yeah, it re- resonated in a lot of uh, concerned individuals. Um, in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed requiring active ingredients, that means, you know, morphine, cocaine, <laughs> alcohol, uh, and dosage to be included on medicine labels for the first time. Wow. Uh, it's nuts. Uh, California passed the Poison Act in 1907, making cannabis and, more importantly, their industry, hemp, illegally, illegal. Um, in uh, 1913, it was amended to include extracts, tinctures, and other narcotic preparations of hemp or loco weed. <laughs> there are preparations and compounds. And, and by um, the way, at this time, cannabis was almost exclusively referred to as Indian hemp. Mm. Which is why you know it it wasn't coming from <laughs> India. Indians weren't making it, but uh, yeah, they would. You'll find this is also later on. It would be called marijuana, whereas why was it anyway? Again, like I say, there's a much bigger story we could be telling here, but this is not about comics. Sure. Uh, in 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act, uh, Narcotic Act was passed. The first law is regulating the distribution and transport of opiates. Uh, it would be later amended to include doctors overprescribing opiates. Uh, in 1919, the 18th Amendment, everyone's favorite, prohibition, is passed, and alcohol is made illegal in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Canadian liquor makers rejoice. Now, uh, marching along, 1930, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is founded, headed by Harry, Harry Jacob Enslinger. He would be in charge of the FBN for 32 years. It's which a is long time. Crazy to me, uh, you know, for one a bureau, a government bureau, to have someone in there so long. Although we have senators and congressmen <laughs> in there that much longer, but that's another story. Uh, this one man would control the conversation about drugs in America for all that time, pretty much, and well known in the 1930s for a heavy scare campaign against cannabis and for saying this. By the tons it is coming into this country, the deadly, dreadful poison that racks and tears not only the body, but the very heart and soul of every human being who once becomes a slave to it in any of its cruel and devastating forms. Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but storehouse of, of horrid, horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. Just which sounds is, legit. That's about right. You know, yeah. Uh, in 1933, the 18th Amendment was repealed by the 22nd Amendment. They decided mm. that wasn't working out for them. Uh, but that was just alcohol, folks. Now, between 1919 and 1936, many states had placed restrictions on cannabis, but they were varied from state to state. It wasn't until 1937 Congress passed their Marijuana Stamp Act, making it legal to possess cannabis only if you had this $1 tax stamp. Uh, if you you could only get the stamp though if you produced some of your goods, some marijuana. So it created a catch twenty two that effectively made it illegal, kind of just under the table, you know, illegalness. Uh, the Boggs Act of nineteen fifty one introduced mandatory sentencing for heinous crimes, including moral vices, which would have included drug abuse. Yeah, it's interesting. In June 1971, President Richard Nixon declared the, the a war on drugs. Uh, he characterized the abuse of illicit substances as public enemy number one in the United States. But that phrase comes from, by the way, folks, war on drugs. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Nixon increased the size and scope of all anti-drug efforts, uh, transform, transformed the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, during uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency, 11 states decriminalized cannabis pres- possession, and it was decriminalized at a, the federal level in 1977. However, a change was on the wind. Yeah. Uh, in 1980, soon-to-be first lady and manhunter, uh, <laughs> because uh, Steve Englehart makes everyone who disagrees with them evil villains, uh, Nancy Reagan <laughs> came in contact with a substance abuse prevention program supported by the National Institutes of Health, and she was moved by their work. When Ronald Reagan was elected, Nancy was determined to make this her cause. That's uh, The first ladies usually get a cause. Yeah. Um, I think going back only to... Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt, I think. I could yeah. be wrong about that, but yeah, she's definitely popularized, and everyone since has had something. Sure. Um, she said, understanding what drugs can do to your children, understanding peer pressure, and understanding why they turn to drugs is the first step in solving the problem. Uh, initially, she visited schools and funneled more money into drug awareness programs, doubtlessly resulting in the very comics that we just discussed. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1982, the phrase Just Say No first emerged when Nancy Reagan was visiting Longfellow Elementary School in Oakland, California. A student asked what she should say when offered drugs. Nancy replied, just say no. The just say no slogan, though, was the creation of Robert Cox and David Cantor, advertising executives at the New York office of Needham, Harper, and Steers slash USA, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there were, you know, there were pins, stickers, placards. You could have you could have been head to toe with just say no stuff back then. Absolutely. Uh, Nancy would appear on different strokes and Punky Brewster, and I think a couple other shows even in 1983 peddling her Just Say No mantra, and there were stickers, buttons, like I said, after-school clubs, packs to sign, real all-American fun. In fact, 1983 seems to be the breakout year for drug awareness in the 1980s, and perhaps we have the new Teen Titans to thank for that. Mm-hmm, I'd, I'd, so. like to, I'd like to think that's <laughs> true, I'll put it that way. Now, uh, we discussed the drugs, let's talk about some other comic book PSAs. We're going to start with a doozy. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man and Power Pack versus Sexual Abuse. It came out in 1984. There were two stories. Uh, The first story is a Spider-Man story by Jim Salakrip and Jim Mooney. A Power Pack story by Louise Simonson, June Brigman, and Mary Wilshire, which was the uh, regular creative team for Power Pack. Oh, wow. Uh, This came from Marvel, the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Spider-Man hears a boy being abused next door and swings next door to tell a story about another young boy who was abused. Himself. Whoa! Yeah. And they never mentioned it again. (laughs) Ever, ever, ever. (laughs) I I have this issue. I just haven't read it. Do you you know who abused him? Uh, It was a family friend, I believe. Not the guy in the bike shop, right? <laughs> no, I don't think it was Mr. Hooper, no. <laughs> no, no the, uh, the Power Pack story is actually much darker than that. Friend of the pack, Jane, runs away from home because her father abuses her. She told her mother, but wasn't believed, which is a common thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Power Pack take Jane back to the hell, their house, where Mrs. Power gives Jane a number so she can call and get herself some help. And it ends. That's it. You know, we don't, That's it. We don't really know what happens after that, but I guess it's uh, the dark world of that. <laughs> Uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Next one we'll talk about is X-Men Heroes for Hope. That was 1985. This book was split into two-page chapters featuring top creators of the time. 
um, kind of paired up in, in interesting ways. But overall, written by Stan Lee, Ed, Brian, Louise Simonson, Stephen King, Bill Mantlo, Alan Moore, and Nocenti, Harlan Ellison, Chris Claremont, Joe Duffy, Mike Barron, Denny O'Neill, George Martin, Bruce Jones, Steve Englehart, Jim Shooter, Mike Grell, and Archie Goodwin. I mean, that's like... Virtually we didn't start the fire. Everybody, though. I mean, you know, that's uh, the biggest that's names in Marvel, folks. pretty much, almost. You know, I don't want to see... Uh, there he is, Chris Claremont. Uh, mm -hmm. I just, uh, art by John Romita Jr., John Buscema, Brent Anderson, John Byrne, Bernie Wrightson, Charlie Vess, Richard Corbin, Mike Kaluta, Frank Miller, Brian Boland, John Bolton, Steve Rude, Brett Blevins, Herb Trimpey, or Trimp, we don't we'd never know, Gray Morrow, <laughs> Paul Goulassey, Alan Weiss, Jackson Weiss, and Howard Chaikin. This is a really all-star cast. The story here Big that time. an ancient psychic antagonist that's attacking the X-Men is traced to Africa where they kick his butt. While there, they feed the despairing, starving folks. So that was nice. Mm -hmm. They did a little not, double duty on that one. <laughs> now, not to be outdone. Of course. Across the street, Superman and Batman, Heroes Against Hunger. Yeah, we're against hunger, too, here, you know. Yeah, we, if, you, if you don't put a book out, that means you're for hunger. Yeah. Uh, so this is, uh, of course, by DC, and all proceeds go to relieve hunger in Africa. So another, bi another book split into two-page chapters featuring top creators of the time. <clears throat> Written by Jim Starlin, Carrie Bates, Elliot S. Magan, Paul Levitz, Mike W. Barr, and Robert Block, art by George Perez, Keith Giffen, Marshall Rogers, Barry Windsor Smith, Jack Kirby, and Jim Sherman. Uh, Neil Adams draws the cover. It's a very famous cover where uh, yep. Lex Luthor is taunting Superman and Batman that even with their powers, they can't fix hunger. And so Superman, Batman, and Lex head to Ethiopia to fight the master, who they think is the cause of their famine. But, you know, he, he isn't. Yeah, there are bigger factors at work in, in a Ethiopian famine. It's not just, not a, just some dude. It's not, it's not the famine ray, folks. I'm sorry. This isn't a comic book <laughs> thing we can just solve by punching someone. Purple famine ray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, next, we're going to talk about Captain America Meets the Asthma Monster, 1987, by Louise Simonson and Alex Saviak. It's going to be in the next movie. This, uh, yeah, this story is that the asthma monster attacks an elementary school in Midvale with an Allergun, <laughs> a weapon that induces <laughs> asthma in folks that don't have it. Two children that do have asthma aren't affected because they have taken their, their asthma medication. Captain America shows up to take the asthma monster down. This is hilarious. Turns out to be an asthmatic guy in a rubber costume that just wanted to share his asthma with the world. It was like, what? It's like a what Scooby. A he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling kids. You know, it's hilarious. <laughs> Let's stick with Cap for a little while here. We got Captain America Goes to War Against Drugs. This is 1990 by Peter David and Sal Valuto. That's uh, by Marvel and produced in cooperation with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI themselves. Uh, an alien race known as the Tzin endeavored to invade the earth, but to test our defenses, they decide first to tempt four random youths with drugs. Um, with the help of Captain America, one of them is able to turn down the drugs, which causes the Zin to turn tail and run. This is like the, the modern telling of War of the Worlds, you know, the, you know the, the common cold killed them once, and then, you know, the ability to turn down peer pressure was the second blow. Just we, say no was their kryptonite. We can't take down this planet, run! You know what I mean? They're too strong for us! Uh, now, the, the last three we're going to talk about, this is really interesting, the land, I call this the Landmine Awareness Trilogy. I was, mm -hmm. I was surprised to read about this. Uh, the first one we'll talk about is Superman and Wonder Woman, The Hidden Killer, 1988. Really not a great title, considering mm -hmm. what it's about, but uh, 
by Andy Helfer and Eduardo Barreto. This is by DC Comics, the U.S. Department of Defense, UNICEF, and the Mine Action Charter. And in fact, all the, these three books are by this collection, I think. Triumphant. Of, yeah, <laughs> of, of folks. Uh, this is a special edition humanitarian comic book that promotes landmine awareness among children living in Central and South American countries where this would apply in Nicaragua and Colombia and places like that. The storyline was recommended to DC Comics by American soldiers belonging to the 1st PSYOP Airborne Battalion from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They'd conducted minefield assessments while in Costa Rica, Honduras, and Nicaragua, and probably saw things that caused them to think this book was necessary. Uh, Superman and Wonder Woman save a couple of kids from landmines, then show the kids a landmine victim to make them more aware. Yikes. Yikes. Uh, 90,000 copies of this were printed in English for the North American market. 560,000 copies printed in Spanish for South and Central America. Wow. So this is, I mean, I, I got to say, you know, Chris, when I was researching this, I was like, wow, what a crazy topic. But then I, mm-hmm. I really started to think about it and the reach of it and how pervasive a problem this must be. And Absolutely. You re- it really brings home the horror of it you know what i mean like mm-hmm. wow this is not a kind topic but that's certainly not I have to deal with it somehow yeah yeah and it uh continues uh, we have superman deadly legacy in 1996 this is uh louise simonson and dick giordano is uh, by that same group here dc the u.s department of defense unicef and the mine action charter uh Pretty much same kind of deal as the uh, the one we just talked about, but uh, this instead of being for Central America, this is for Serbians and Croatians, uh, coming off the uh, Yugoslavian uh, civil war. Yeah. Uh, Superman rescues two kids from a house booby trapped with landmines, and a, a dog dies. Yeah. Um, that yeah, that's that's, that's rough. <laughs> uh, yeah. In in Bosnia, the free comic book was distributed by a peacekeeping force led by North American Treaty Organization, that's NATO, and the Mine Action Center located in Sarajevo. Uh, Superman Deadly Legacy was published in English, Serbian, and Croatian. Yeah, I didn't get numbers on that one, but I assume they were similar, you know, 90 Probably, for yeah. North America and a, and a lot for uh, Serbia and Croatia. The last of the Landmine trilogy came a, a, a little later than the rest of these. Uh, Batman Death of Innocence, The Horror of Landmines. Finally actually mentioning that it's about landmines in the title. Yeah. 1996 by Denny O'Neill and Joe State. So, I mean, you notice that... All of these books have pretty robust creative teams. These aren't sure. they, they didn't give these to the third stringers, you know, the no names like uh this was a, this DC took these very seriously. Uh mm-hmm. same same people DC and the US Department of Defense UNICEF and the Mine Action Charter. This promoted landmine Americans uh, uh, landmine awareness to Americans that might be traveling abroad. It contained a preface by Senator Patrick Leahy, the innocent victims of landmines. Then it had essays by Colonel David H. Hackworth, Jody Williams, and Jerry White, who had personal experience with landmines. The actual comic story itself is that Batman goes to fictional Kravia, where landmine has killed a Wayne Tech employee and left her, her daughter Sarah in the hands of Kravian rebels. Batman rescues the, uh, Sarah, but before, they can be, but before they can be rescued by airship, she picks up a toy... That is not a toy, and mm. I think you can, uh, you know, connect the dots from there. It's not sure. a happy ending, uh, as many Batman books are not. But yeah, mm-hmm. I found that I found that all this really fascinating. Like, this was a obviously a big enough issue that it required three comic books and a pretty yep. robust uh, awareness campaign. And uh, scary stuff, folks. Do not mess with things sticking out of the ground. I guess is the advice I would give you. 
mm-hmm. at this point. But uh, that's all the PSAs that we going to talk about now. I know there are others in the world or ones that you might even be able to say are PSAs. Sure. Uh, and if you have any more in your mind or if you have anything you want to talk about uh, from this episode or about the comics that we read, you can email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History or on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. I'm personally on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I mention every week, and I'll say it this time too, go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. Where, and I will have in the show notes like a link to your reviews of all three mm-hmm. of these PSAs, but uh, you recently went through Millennium, which I know uh, yeah. uh, it changed, changed you for life as a person. It did. It and did. It, uh, yeah. made, made you a harder person, maybe? Maybe a little more? I think I'm done with this whole comics thing. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're moving on to movies now. Something, yeah. a, little, something a little less heart-wrenching. You know? I'm going to become a poet. Good yeah. gosh. You know? yeah, that, that's a tough one to get through. And, and it's funny, as you were, as you were posting them, you're getting more comments from people like, "Oh boy, I can't believe you're you're <laughs> yeah. doing the Lord's work there, Chris. You're, you're a better man than I am, you know." So yeah, uh, I, I 100% got a, a round of applause when I was done. But then today, you did 100% the, uh, true. You did that, that that action comics from the 70s with the Batman with the Superman eating all the hamburgers on the yes. cover. Yes, famous. That was movie. another uh, a story of addiction. So uh, it's true. <laughs> you know that could that could fit in here too. So uh, anyway, you gotta go check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. It's fantastic. Got a new DC comic every single day, and it's very funny, very insightful, and it's got ads at the end. I love it. It does. So uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris, you got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. So until next week, I want you to keep it on the treadmill silently. Shh. See ya. Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while, I think of you. A very strange reaction. The more I see, the more I do. Tell all your friends they can go my way Pay your toll, sell your soul Pound for pound costs more than gold The longer you stay, the more you pay My white lines go a long way Either up your nose or through your vein With nothing to gain except killing your brain Dream.